Hello, I'm Nate in Colorado. I'm Rochella in North Carolina. And I'm James in London. We are Friends in Formation. It's a podcast where three very different friends take your questions about life and faith with the goal to listen, to learn, and to help one another go deeper in our life with God. Friends Information is produced by Renovare, a Christian ecumenical renewal effort offering resources and experiences to help people become more like Jesus. We would love for you to join the conversation. In fact, we are dependent upon you joining the conversation. So please email us your questions to friends at renovare.org. That's friends at R-E-N-O-V-A-R-E dot org. And if we use your question in a future episode, we'll happily send you very special, unique Friends Information mug. Look, I've got mine. Hey, there you go. There's nothing like it. (laughs) That's right. I've actually been using it quite a bit. Oh, yeah. I smile every time I... Yeah. It's it's wearing well. I was, you know, wondering how I'd go through the dishwasher 50 times. But uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, someone have a question for us today? Oh, man. Guys, I have a question that has not only captured my thoughts, but my heart as well. It comes from Andrew, and I'm going to read a good little portion of what he writes in in the question. Sometimes we just ask, you know, we cut to the chase and just ask the question. But I'm going to read you guys his message. He says, I'm prone to be a very serious religious performer, constantly striving for God's approval, blessing, and favor. So you can imagine the joy I feel reading Matthew 11, 28 to 30 this most beautiful declaration against religious performance. You you guys know that passage. It's come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Andrew goes on to say, my heart sings at these words of Jesus, but I'm fundamentally not a transformed person, and the constant struggle against the flesh is real. So I've turned to the spiritual disciplines, seeking to put to death my flesh and receive the promised new heart. But the spiritual disciplines don't feel restful. (laughs) They feel like labor. Some of them, like fasting, are downright agonizing. So he says, here's his question. Is the rest Jesus promises only accessible when our flesh has been sufficiently put to death and we have the promised new heart? Or is it possible to practice the spiritual disciplines out of a place of peace and rest from day one following Jesus? Or is the easy and light yoke only the prize at the end of an arduous journey? How about that for a question? That's a great question. Yeah. Love it. There's an expression in Parisian. We say, is it jam tomorrow? And what that means is that we're always promised um, you know, jam tomorrow. We're never promised jam today. So at the moment, I'm just eating my bread with nothing on it. But the promise is made that there'll be jam tomorrow. <laughs> just and hang course, in there with your dry just crust. Just hang in there. But it, but it always seems that it's always, um, you know, jam tomorrow. Jam tomorrow. <laughs> that sounds so British, right? Which does. 
the British are mad on jam. <laughs> well, we love our jam, yes. But, but you can see the, the, the point there, can't mm-hmm. you? That it's always mm-hmm. promising another, uh, the day will come, hang in there. You can't see it now, but you'll experience it. And mm-hmm. a more sort of common way of, of putting it is we live in the time of between the now and the not yet, which, of course, I get that. Please understand, I get that. But Mm -hmm. usually when I've heard that said, people then say, and the not yet is a long way off, you know, don't expect much now. And so I see that Andrew, I think, really makes a very important issue. I think he brings that up. Is is progress really going to happen? Because many people feel it's not, you know, um, happening. I mean, I remember somebody saying to me a while ago, it doesn't work. So I want to hear the answer as well as everybody else. Right. Well, I want to start answering his question by going back to that passage that he quotes, that I think does, it sounds so beautiful. Like when I was growing up, I, we sang a song in church that was just one of the most beautiful. It was just this passage set to music. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so I think of it as such a beautiful thought, but it really is easy to think of it as just a beautiful thought and not a reality, right? Yet I am taken by that metaphor of Jesus about the yoke, because I come from country people. I mean, my, my, my family were, were farmers for generations. And so the idea of a yoke is not in my far distant past. You know, we have a great photograph hanging in the wall of our home of my husband's grandfather at the plow. I mean, just literally oh, holding lovely. onto a plow. Yeah. When I think about that yoke that Jesus describes, and of course, I mean, we know he used all kinds of agricultural metaphors, but this one, I think I have understood best after hearing Dallas Willard talk about it once. And he said that, you know, the yoke is what is used to to hook two working animals together and they working together, they can pull a heavier load than either could pull by itself. And he said, the secret to the easy yoke is that Jesus is inviting us to take his yoke. That is to say, Jesus is pulling the load and we are yoked together with him. And the reason he can describe it as easy is because he supplies the power. And what I hear in Andrew's very eloquent question is that he's trying so hard to drum up the power himself. And he sees himself as a non-transformed person because he's really trying to do it himself. And I appreciate that effort, but I think maybe Jesus is inviting us to slip in with him and to let him provide the power instead of having to call it up within ourselves. I mean, y'all, try as I might, I just cannot summon up the strength to be the person I want to be. I I need Jesus to supply the power because I just, I ain't got it. I don't 
have it. So I think that part of the easy yoke metaphor is one that we can understand only if we can think in terms of doing this with Jesus. Does, does that make sense? I don't know if that's helpful to people, but what the first thing that my heart wants to say to Andrew is, you are not alone. Jesus is there with you. And when we see you, we hear you. We've seen it in ourselves. What I would so love to tell people is that they, they don't have to do this under their own strength. One of the parts that jumps out to me in the verse is, you know, take my yoke, I'm gentle and kind. Mm-hmm. We're, we're enslaving, connecting ourselves to a kind, gentle teacher. James, I'm remembering you talking once about seeing yokes in, in various countries and, and that it can be kind of a bloody ordeal. Am I getting that accurate? That's interesting. Yes, it can be. I mean, some of them, they don't fit. And it's a terrible thing to see it, actually. It's a gruesome thing to see the flesh broken and the flies all swarming mm-hmm. around this poor you know, ox or a donkey or a terrible and being pushed and pummeled and everything else. I mean, the cruelty is pretty awful. But then you do get one that does fit. And I do like that image. And there's a power thing, which I recognize, Rochelle, I think that's right. There's also, there's an older ox. There's an experienced ox. There's an ox who's been Mm -hmm. here, who's done this, who's been up and down. You know, it's not my first rodeo is an expression that comes to mind, you know. And I think that that helps me. One of the pieces that jumps out to me uh, in, in Andrew's question is his confession at the beginning of a you know, re- religious performer. And so often I've seen people approach the disciplines uh, out of that, you know, kind of mindset of earning something. And, right. and then that becomes, you know, really destructive in, in my mind. Part of me really wants to say, slow down, go a little smaller and and move into some of the the goodness and freedom in that certainly there are practices that we suffer sometimes considerably but at least for me doing that intentionally that's usually a call usually a kind of hey Nate how about this and and usually it comes with a sort of enthusiasm of sorts of all right good let's let's go let's go fast and see what comes up uh, so part of me wants to encourage him to not overthink it, maybe slow down a little. The The means of change, the change that occurs is not necessarily helpful to focus on. Usually that's for others to notice. But the call in my mind is to be connected, to let Jesus be our ever-present teacher, showing us how to plow the field of our life and, and in time, pushing against that less and less and and finding a, a sort of ease of life in that. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, I like I like those words, Nathan. That that's really helpful because both of you just alluded to the ill fitting yoke. Mm-hmm. You know, I think one of the dangers of talking about the discipline is this idea that that anything is one size fits all, and I just don't think that's the way Jesus works with us. Mm-hmm. 
Jesus knows what we need, including knowing the areas in which we need transformation. Mm. So it's always helpful to me to stop and remember that the disciplines are means of grace, you know, that the work in our hearts is going to be done by God. And the disciplines are, are just ways of putting us back before God over and over and over so that God can change us. And, you know, we all need different things. Some of us really struggle with humility. You know, hello, me, <laughs> of sinners I am chief, right? Some of us really struggle with that. And so I find very often that the Spirit invites me into service and even into hidden service, doing something that I'm not going to get any credit for. Oh, that's hard. It is hard. And yet it gets a little easier. So I do think that there is a sense that it's not just for when we're totally transformed. The ease is not just all at the end. The ease is coming incrementally. So what do you think about the day one reference that Andrew makes? You know, Is it possible to practice the spiritual disciplines out of a place of peace and rest from day one? Would you say that? I would say that it is possible to experience the peace of having found something that will work. <laughs> So there's peace that comes that, and this is where I rely on the testimony of others. So many people have told me and shown me that these work. And so now I don't have to go scrambling, looking for another program. I can just exhale and know that I'm going to submit myself to this and trust that it'll work. So I do think there is some day one peace and rest of coming that that this is, I'm going to start learning these rhythms of grace, these unforced rhythms of grace. And there's some peace from day one and then greater peace as we go along. What about you, Nate? I don't know. Sure. I'm open to it. Yeah. I don't, I don't think I have an opinion on that. So now what about you, James? Yeah, you, James. Answer your own question. I think the key to this is to start with the gentle and lowly of heart. I think mm. it stands, I think we, we overlook that. I mean, the many preachers I've heard who've used this as an evangelistic outreach verse, that the come to me, all you who are weary. And but they, there's no real emphasis on the gentle and lowly of heart because the entry requirement for the peace and rest, I suggest, may be around the gentle and lowly of my heart. And I wonder, Andrew, whether in the attention you're paying to, am I making progress on these things? Are you spotting how your gentle and lowly heart is growing? Because I look at my own journey, and I feel that when I've been working on you know, stuff and dealing with stuff and, and trying to see progress and victory, and it's not coming at the speed I want it. What I miss is, yes, but in the process, I'm developing a gentle and lowly heart because I'm saying, I can't fix this. I can't make this mm -hmm. work. So I'm looking in one direction and I don't spot that this is happening. 
Yeah, and that's Jesus' description of himself, right? That's right. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and that's our goal, is becoming more like him. So I think you're right, James. He's giving us a clue here of what we're actually working toward. There's a, a very interesting I- image that N.T. Wright has, which, I mean, he's good at these images, but was one, he tells a little story about his, there, his with a group of people out for evening out and they've parked the car next to where they're going to be and so he says to them after their evening says I'll just go and I'll get the car and it's it's literally here it's just around the and he takes ages to get the car and they get really anxious you know where is he has he had the problem because it's simply there but he realizes when he gets the car that he can't turn in their direction he has to go hmm. through a one-way system and he has to go the long way round to get to where he needs to get to, which seems such an easy, quick A to B. Why couldn't that be done quickly? But, but, but he's taken round with street after street after street and eventually comes back to where he needs to get to. And I think there's something in that with our putting on Jesus. Why can't it just you know happen? But I think it may be that we're being taken the long way round. We actually, we need to be taken, I need to be taken the long way round. And in the process of being taken the long way round, but blow me down, what's being developed is a more gentle and lowly of your heart. What do you think of that? Just like Jesus. No, I like yeah. that. I like that. I like that. But if I just add then, I'd say from day one of having the gentle and lowly heart, I think it is possible to find a place of peace and rest when we yoked with Jesus, who is the older, wiser ox. Mm, I like it. So here's one that I'm so interested in. Thank you to Rhonda for asking this, because it's a verse of scripture that I have been so interested in, has been significant to me. It's Galatians 5, verse 1, and Rhonda says, I have been thinking of freedom, Galatians 5, 1, and I see that when I talk with other Christians, that there is a fear and resistance when it comes to freedom. Why is that if this is something Christ wants us to truly experience? What does true freedom look like in ordinary, everyday life? Are there practices that help position us to experience true freedom more as Christ wants for us? Well, I think that's brilliantly put. We'd love to have Mm -hmm. some answers on that one. Do you guys know what she means by knowing people who are afraid of freedom? I can hazard a guess. That's all I can do. I've spotted with this verse when it's pulled up. It's still such a surprising verse because so often the implication or the inference is it is for something else that we were made for. Free. We want to put something else in the place. So it's for converting other people that you have been made free. It is for to give more money to church that you have been set free. It is for service you've been set free. And I still think it's such a 
subversive verse this when it says no it's for freedom that you've been set free i mean <laughs> we'd all want to put lots of other things in that, <laughs> that place and it seems such a counterintuitive <laughs> it's for my own joy and contentment to be set free right yeah Mm-hmm. That's a good question. And I struggle a little with that of, you know, what, what, what she's referencing like that. And maybe one piece I'd, I'd add is that there is a sort of safety and bondage because it's what we know and mm-hmm. you know, having kind of living in rigidity or whatnot. Freedom can be scary and there can be, you know, so I don't know if maybe there's something there. The thing that jumps out to me in, in terms of freedom is being responsible, able to respond. And responding to, uh, to quote uh, Jean-Pierre de Crissad, respond to the movements of the spirit like a floating balloon, learning to place our kingdom in God's kingdom and welcoming God's rule and, and the things we have control over. That's what I think of with, with freedom. I think sometimes the resistance that's found to the idea of freedom is this underlying lack of understanding that, that we we actually can become more and more free of sin. I've met a lot of people who struggle with feeling that they never make any progress, that they are continually slaves to sin. And I, I run into a good bit of theology that goes along with that, that you know, no one ever makes any progress, that every day you'll just be uh, just as much a slave to sin as the day before. And I appreciate the humility of that, but I think it denies the fact that we actually can make progress mm-hmm. in Christlikeness. And so when, when I read this passage in Galatians, which I agree with you on, James, it's just a fascinating one. I'll go ahead and read the rest of the chapter there and, and think about the book of Galatians, where yes. Paul is talking to a group of people who were really getting on well in their faith and then some folks wanted to say, well, no, we, we want we want you to have to submit to all the rules of Judaism. You know, we, we, we don't want you to be free. We want you to have to submit <laughs> to, to all of these things. And the idea is that you can't be trusted unless you submit to all of this. And but I think that what's being put on offer here is the is freedom in Christ, a freedom to become more like Christ, who is not someone who is going to take advantage of others. He's not someone who's going to lord it over others. He's not someone who's going to be proud and dangerous. Instead, he is going to serve and love. And so we're being offered freedom and greater freedom, I think, to be servants to be loving, to be safe for people. And if what we're looking for is freedom to just do whatever we want to do without considering anyone else, I don't think we're going to find it. But I think we can become more and more free from not just from the penalty of sin, but from the ravages of sin, from from the way sin twists our hearts and and enslaves us truly. We can become more and more free of having to comply with sin's demands. Jesus was 
so free because he didn't, he just, he wouldn't do it. <laughs> it was offered to him. When you think about his temptation in the wilderness, Satan offered him the best of what he had to offer. And Jesus said, no, he was free to say no to being, you know, to lording it over others or, you know, requiring that, that everything bow down to him. And free of that, he could move on to freedom even from seeking comfort for his flesh. So, so many things that bog us down are because we say yes to things that, that offer not the ultimate goodness that Jesus offers. This ties into me from the last question about the yoke. And, and I have this idea that mm-hmm. we as humans are going to be sl- enslaved to something. We're yoking ourselves to something, uh, whether that's, mm. you know, uh, enslaved to happen to have my own way or addictions or people pleasing. Just as humans, we're going yeah. <laughs> to put that yoke around our neck. And those are some cruel yokes. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and that's where, I, you know, thinking in terms of being yoked to Jesus, that this is, this is about freedom. And mm. there's a goodness and a beauty in, in that that I find quite compelling, I guess. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think your earlier comment about what freedom looks like, that light as a balloon able to respond to the movements of the spirit, I mean, that is a very attractive image of freedom compared to often the freedom that we're seeing in our culture is you know, is is different and how we're not free in the context that I'm in with the decline of church and the covering of the church in our society, people will say we're more free. But the, the problem is we're not. We live in such a surveillance society. There are cameras on the corner mm-hmm. of virtually every street where I live. You know, I'm mm. being watched with my traffic online and, you know, you have to click. Can can we track your, you know, <laughs> cookies and everything? I mean, this is not, the, if this was the image of freedom, we're not doing that well with it. Right. And it's funny, I think it's a G.K. Chesterton quote, isn't it, where he says, you know, in a society where there isn't a sort of overarching um, structure of a spiritual life or of a transcendent involvement of God or or whoever you call that, actually what happens is we um, you know, huddle together because we're very scared of what's out hmm. there, what hmm. might come after us and get us. You know, as we walk home in the field, something, some animal might come and get us. We're a frightened society very often of other people of difference to us. So I'm intrigued by all of that, what freedom looks like. But if we're looking for practices, mm, that's right. I, I, mm-hmm. Well, I kind of think that we, we really need to get a little bit more structure. And now's not the time, unfortunately, to go into it. But, you know, Jesus says in Mark, 1230 he says to love the lord your god with all your heart soul mind and strength 
And any practices that help to grow our heart, soul, mind, and strength will help us to find greater freedom. If you drill away at those, you'll find that greater freedom will come because the heart is about the will, the ability to make a choice and to stick to it, which is not so easy. The soul is the, as we might say nowadays, the chief operating system that's running our lives. When we aren't doing anything else, our soul runs our lives. Our mind is what we think about, and we're often encouraged to set the Lord always in front of us, to think of him. That's the part of us that makes, you know, shall I do this? Shall I not do that? What's the advantage of this option? What's the advantage of that option? And then our strength is the ability to act on whatever we've chosen. Agency is often the word we use now. What's the agency people have? And if we can understand a bit more about the heart, the soul, the mind, and the strength, and grow in freedom for each of those, and order them, then we will find remarkable progress in freedom. I mean, remarkable progress. I love that, James, because that you you spoke words of Jesus there, who of course is quoting yes. the the call to prayer to the people of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The fact that this is ancient wisdom for the people of God, I'm imagining that one practice could be just calling those words to mind, especially with the advice that you've just offered, James, of, of, of trying to order those. You know, But what if we start by just saying, okay, every morning when I rise and each noonday and in the evening before I retire, I'm just going to call those words to mind and think about how I might be employing that this day. Maybe uh, maybe make a list of four things, but since we have heart, soul, mind, and strength. it's This call has stood the test of time. So why don't we just follow that pattern and see how we get on? I really, really like your, your bringing that up. Freedom in Christ, it seems to me, is a good description of what happens as we mature into the kind of people who are safe for one another. Mm-hmm. You know, so much of that surveillance that you mentioned, James, is because we don't feel safe. And very often we act in ways that make the people around us <laughs> unsafe. But as we grow in Christ likeness, I think we're, we're going to be way more safe to be around. It's a good goal. I have a question that comes to us from Deborah, and here it is. What can spiritual formation look like in the context of marriage? And how do each of you share Ooh. spiritual life with your spouses? Oh, personal question. Oh, boy. <laughs> how do you share your spiritual life with your spouse? <laughs> we should start, not assuming anything, but by saying that we are mm-hmm. all three married. Oh, yes. 
aren't we? Right. Yeah. So Nay is married to Christy, and you guys have been married how long? 27 years tomorrow, actually. That's impressive. Oh, wow. It's impressive you've been married that long and yeah. impressive that you remember how long it is. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's right. That's right. I, I have it well done. Tattooed well on. done. <laughs> oh, well, that, 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 you know, that does help. <laughs> and you, James, you're married to Sue. Married to Sue for 23 years. Yes, I win. <laughs> oh, yeah. Mm. <laughs> Not so fast, buddy. Not so fast. Are you Go the winner? Ahead, Rochelle. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, I have been married to Jack. Um, come this June, it will be 37 years. Wow. You were 12. Clearly, I was 12, yeah. right? <laughs> but, y'all, I have to tell you this. It's so interesting to me that we're taking up this question after we have just considered the the yoke, the easy yoke, hmm. because the verse from the Bible that most governed my looking for a spouse back when I was 12. Now, understand I was a kid. <laughs> not quite, not quite. But the, the verse that was quoted, I, I would say it was quoted at us a lot, was, 2 Corinthians 6.14, which says, Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Mm. Now, of course, I'm quoting there from the King James Version because that's what we used at the time. But by our parents and our teachers, we, we were all advised that we could only date not only a Christian, but someone from our faith tradition, because otherwise we would be Unequally yoked. <laughs> yes, yes. So it's just funny to me that we're talking about marriage um, on a day we're talking about the yoke. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. I'm intrigued by that, you know, because I hadn't really. Yeah, it's it's interesting. the The unbelievers, of course, is interesting because mm-hmm. it, it, the way it was taught to us was you mean someone who's not a Christian. But I think there's something a bit deeper than that, an unbeliever. Mm-hmm. You know, you can mm-hmm. be a card-carrying Christian, but it doesn't mean you're a believer. Right, yeah. I would think. Yeah, I don't think the passage was ever intended to apply to marriage specifically. And yet it can, right? Mm. I mean, we we want to, and since this question is how how do these principles of spiritual formation apply within a marriage? I would say, first of all, I am deeply grateful that my marriage partner, in my case, my husband, is a believer, someone who does want to make progress in Christ-likeness. And I'm mm-hmm. grateful for that. But I do not take that for granted. Mm-hmm. And I know lots of people who who are married to folks who either are, as you say, James, card-carrying Christians, but but aren't really interested in the spiritual life much, or who have rejected it entirely. So I don't take that for granted. And I can only speak from what I do in my relationship with someone who is, in fact, interested in making progress in Christ-likeness. So, but I think we, we, we want to be gentle and tender here because there are lots of folks who, who can't operate from that position. 
Well, one of the things that happens when you're married for 27 years is you you grow and you change. Mm-hmm. My spouse and I are in, in in very different places in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. and it's interesting. I'm I'm just trying to reflect a little on that because probably for both of us, there's some grief there, but there's also some help. I very much respect her journey of sorts, and I don't want to mess with that. Like I don't want to get controlling or. I don't know. It's it's her it's her story and the way our lives intersect is where they intersect. I will say she keeps me honest. That mm. that that you know there are conversations that I find really helpful because we're not, you know, uh, lockstep on certain on certain issues. I don't know. I don't have anything to say on this really. <laughs> <laughs> well, what you just said is awfully valuable. Is. I mean, I, I think you're right, Thank Nate, you. that one of the great things about being in a very long-term relationship is that somebody knows you well enough to call you out on your on your lies to yourself and to them, right? So the fact that she keeps you honest is wow. I would say my husband's cut from the same cloth. He he's the one who can can say, I beg your pardon. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I, I, yeah. I don't necessarily mean honest in calling me on stuff, although there's that too. Oh, no. no. Um, yeah. Honest in, in the sense of when we're confronted with different beliefs, we have to, we got to mm-hmm. be really thoughtful and think things through. And, and I'm exactly, always yeah. grateful for those conversations. Yeah. I think I would just play around a bit more or explore a bit more this believer word. I just think that's a, because I think believer does give a breadth of understanding and you know, insight if we don't insist upon a certain type of religious language. And we can then start to find the possibilities in somebody else's language. So a believer, mm. a believer in what? You know, you may have a spouse who has, who's a believer in others, who's a believer in the potential of other people, someone who's a believer in hearing God speak in ways that are not in a church service or are not mm-hmm. in a particular um, you know, stereotype. And I think the diversity of experience in a relationship of a husband and wife, we want as much as we can to as Tate is saying, to embrace and learn from the divergences and see how even the Lord might be speaking to us through our spouse, even if they're not speaking to us in traditional, acceptable religious uh, language. Does that make sense? You know, maybe they don't attend church, but they walk, they go for country walks on their own perhaps and come back with a I learned something I thought something I saw something I experienced something and we can appreciate that without dismissing it or disempowering them now I'm not saying these things are easy always but I think I think that helps when our pathways diverge or never worked together in the first place it's trying to find the possibilities i think in practices terms because i think that's what we're you know i do think there are some formational practices that can you know um, strengthen a relationship 
And the most obvious set, although there's many, is Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 6, where he basically says, do three things in private, three secret things, to give in secret, to pray in secret, and to fast in secret. And there seems to be something very profound and transformational about doing those things. And if they are profound and transformational, you would expect them to be spotted by our spouse. If we're being changed, the change (laughs) is happening. The first person who ought to spot it. And I don't think it's wrong to expect that the work of the Holy Spirit, the profound experience of encountering Jesus, others ought to be able to see it in appropriate ways. And often it is in a spouse that it's the appropriate ways. You know, to give in private is quite an interesting experience. To do something without anybody seeing you, it does change you, you know, I I think. Mm -hmm. Um, It makes a difference. You become a different sort of person. You learn resilience, actually, in other areas of your life. Mm-hmm. If, some, if your partner isn't recognizing you or, or praising you for what you did, well, you've worked on that because you're doing other things that nobody can see either. And praying as well, praying just doing it. I mean, I some of us have been enjoying Evelyn Underhill's prayer book, which is a collection of prayers, a profound, remarkable collection of prayers. Try those for a bit in private and see what a difference they make. They will. Praying will do. And fasting as well, to fast. Jesus says in John 4, I have food that you don't have any idea about and we learn through fasting to draw upon him and find that he does give us what we require and it it will you know change us and it will change our relationship with our spouse i think what do you think yeah i i like that you you've both now mentioned change i was talking once with a friend who had actually decided to divorce her husband. And what she said to me was, she was obviously very sad about it, but she said, he's just changed so much. He's not the man I married. And the more I thought about that, the more I thought, boy, I hope I'm not the woman Jack married. I wouldn't want to be that woman now because I needed to change. And I'll be honest and say, before I got married, I thought that the fact that I had heeded the advice not to be unequally yoked (laughs) meant that we would never have any problems in our marriage. (laughs) I I did. I know it's it's ridiculous. 12-year-olds, that's what I thought. Well, yeah, right. Simple thinking. I actually was a full-grown adult, just barely, but I was an adult when I got married. But I really thought that. I thought, well, but, you know, I'm a Christian and Mm. he's a Christian. (laughs) We're not going to have any What could possibly go wrong? What could possibly go wrong, right? (laughs) Well, now, now that I've been married for as long as I have, I have a new rule. I never take marriage advice from anyone who has not never pondered either divorce or murder. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, don't, don't, don't come at me with your marriage advice if you have had a gloriously smooth sailing journey in marriage. If you've been, you know, crying in the closet at times, wondering how could I possibly go on living with this person, then please tell me what has worked for you. <laughs> um, Those are great, so, great questions for a counselor. Tell right. me, have you seriously contemplated divorce or murder? Or murder, exactly. <laughs> Otherwise, we're not doing this. <laughs> <laughs> but one thing I would offer as a, a little piece of, a, a little suggestion for a practice is to learn to mark the occasions that you are glad to be doing something as a team with your partner. My husband and I have, have started doing this because, you know, we know a lot of couples who, who aren't couples any longer, you know, they, so they haven't gotten to this stage where they're doing things together. They're doing things separately for lots of reasons. But now when we get the chance to do something as a couple, one of us will say to the other, I'm really glad I get to do this with you. And we've started making a list and it's been really helpful. It's help, It's been helpful for us to, to give thanks for being at, for instance, for being at our children's graduations together or for being at our son's wedding together or for being together when our grandson was born. We know a lot of people who have passed those milestones, but not together with their spouse. And so we celebrate them. And I would, I would suggest that celebration is an important spiritual discipline. This is something, if, if we can do this together, it's worth celebrating. So that's one practice that has been really life-giving for us. James, I'm curious to hear, because I know you and Sue have you know, very different lives, but yet it does seem like you guys come together in some cool ways. Is there anything you can share with us? Well, I think the first thing I say is everyone needs to work their own out. So there's no quick, easy answers. I mean, my, we do, because of my work, I spend a considerable amount of time away and we married late. You weren't yeah, 12. I weren't. I wasn't 12. <laughs> I think the, the, the quick answer is, and we will we'll wait for you know, emails on this point. I'd be interested to see because we'll get some emails. <laughs> And I hope you won't misunderstand me, but you don't have to tell each other everything. Mm, I don't yeah. mean secrets. I don't mean Mm-mm, secrets no. in that sense, but you don't have to tell each other everything or live in each other's pockets. I don't think it's essential. I think if you do, brilliant. I'm thrilled that's what you do. But there is some emphasis nowadays this thing of pledging your troth, I think, is such an interesting old English expression. You know, you, you pledge your mm-hmm. troth and the two become one. And I think there's something just to think about as to what that means. To know everything, to tell everything, to, you know, we tell each other everything. I've had some people because I'd spend a lot of time talking to people on a one-to-one and sometimes I go oh I'm not sure you should have said that (laughs) you know 
I'm not sure you sort of said that. Relationships are a dance and there's something about, you know, trying to follow the other, to dance with the other, and it's not all about everything. Does that make any sense to you? It does. It does. And, and, and helpful. Helpful. Yeah. Be kind to one another. <laughs> there you go. Oh, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Friends in Formation. We are so grateful to have you along on this journey. And listen, we mean it when we say we want you to send in your questions. Please send us whatever you're interested in, whether it's about spiritual formation or a question that you just have about how we're doing. Anything that you'd like to ask us, send that to friends at R-E-N-O-V-A-R-E. And if we choose your question, we'll send you one of our fantastic coffee mugs. Most of all, know that we're grateful to be walking alongside you. 